Hello, my fine friends. Welcome to another very exciting Rahalastapa book club. This week we are talking to Sam Knight about his book, The Premonitions Bureau. Hello, Sam. How are you doing? Yeah, not not, not bad. Yeah, thank you. First of all, who are you, Sam? And oh, what right. else have you written before this book? <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so this is this 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 is this is my first this is my first book. Um, I okay. I write for. The New Yorker, which is, you know, big uh, American magazine. Um, I've been doing that for, I guess, kind of three or four years. And my job for them is to, to write about Britain for, you know, an international, you know, primarily an American audience. I guess the thing about The New Yorker, they're really long articles. We take, you know, we take a few months over them, which is an amazing kind of luxury to have these days and I guess my work tends to divide between about half the time covering quite kind of meat and potatoes uh, what's going on in these you know benighted aisles and the other half I sort of have a bit more latitude to sort of explore things that that that, that come my way or, or or sort of don't have a you know don't have a particularly obvious purpose to them. Okay and so this book Began is that right? As one of one of the articles you were writing, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it it, it started very much as a kind of me seeing the words, you know, the Premonitions Bureau in a in a in a pretty random book in the British Library many years ago, and then sort of uh, over the years would sort of be researching it a bit in my spare time, and then and then finally convinced the the magazine to sort of to write write a story about it, and it sort of it it, it grew from there. And so tell us in your own words what the book is about exactly. Yeah, so the Premonitions Bureau was an experiment um, that ran in Britain in the mid-1960s, quite a kind of concentrated period of time from the autumn of 1966 to the summer of 1968. And it it was the idea of a psychiatrist called John Barker who was a, a fascinating figure. On the one hand, he was a pretty progressive, um, researching psychiatrist. He had to, he was the deputy superintendent of a, a large mental hospital outside Shrewsbury. He was sort of, psychiatry at that time was sort of full of ideas, you know, terrible problems as well, but kind of a, a field that was changing rapidly, and he was pretty at the at the forefront of that. But at the same time, he had a very, you know, not that unusual, but fairly unusual, you know, mid-20th century British fascination for ghosts or the occult or the kind of the, the unusual workings of time. So he sort of, he managed to sort of have these these two parts of, of his personality sort of rubbing alongside each other. And he became convinced that some people could see the future. They could see things uh, before they happened. And so he came up with this this idea of let's try and collect as many dreams and visions and forebodings from the British public as, as possible and see if we could use those to to prevent disasters. Sure. And I suppose what's interesting is there's often, obviously this is a subject that has been covered a lot by non-scientific people, uh, and uh, generally there's a bit of hokum and bunkum around it. But this was an, a sort of an academic approach, really. And he was, uh, you know, which is fair enough. These things should be investigated, whether they're true. Yeah, or not. I think so. He, he was coming at it more, more of an academic angle. Yeah, I mean, I think he would. I think he would definitely 
say that and and he was um you know determined to enlarge the field of psychiatry i think he thought it was too limited on sort of mental illness and things very much kind of located in the mind and he kind of argued on a kind of broad range of fronts to have a sort of a more kind of holistic view of kind of psychiatry and, and mental health so he would definitely say that he was approaching it as a doctor and as a scientist but nonetheless you know even if there was more tolerance for things like you know parapsychology or the occult in the mid 60s you know even when he was doing the experiment he was taking abuse from other doctors he was getting told off by his superiors and local you know nhs officials uh so he, at the time this was this this was something that was kind of uncomfortable and lots of people would have said you know this isn't being pursued with with proper you know scientific rigor simply because you know it's pretty difficult to do that so yeah well it's 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 a really interesting book i mean it is it is interesting to um it's, well it, partly it's just it's fascinating to sort of see britain at that time i think from from the from the from your journalistic point of view it's a very good uh summing up obviously starting with the Aberfan disaster mainly as, as the as the starting point and whether that could be predicted and whether people have predicted that or not but you get a real feel and, and it's it's and there's a few sort of diversions off as well <laughs> from from you, I think, where yeah. where we're sort of exploring the sixties as much as the Premonitions Bureau. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I I think it is, and I had a you know I had a wonderful time researching it. The 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 Premonitions Bureau was this experiment sort of led by Barker, but done very much in collaboration with a man called Peter Fairley, who was the science editor of the, the Evening Standard newspaper. And and while he was helping to collect all the premonitions from the public, which came into the Evening Standard's newsroom, he would be off in Cape Canaveral kind of watching the, you know, the testing of the Jupiter rockets to carry, you know, astronauts to the moon or writing about, you know, hovercraft or lasers. Or so there was, there he was a real sort of figure of, you know, discovery and excitement and and doing doing the research i you know i spent quite a lot of time in the, the archives of shelton hospital which is this mental hospital outside shrewsbury but also you know tracking down old timers from the evening standard from the 60s and trying to sort of get you know i got a guy to sort of draw out the original floor plan of the newsroom and tried to sort of get as much as i could in touch with the sort of I don't know the sounds and the smells and the kind of the feel the feel of it all. So no, I I I love trying to to sort of evoke that very particular period of time where there was just a huge amount of technological change and social change and you know on some level a fee, a feeling that that many many things were possible and I don't know whether that expands the sense of 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 of, of things that maybe look you know, more impossible to us these days. Yeah, I suppose, and I suppose what I found interesting, and, and maybe this is true of the 60s generally, you know, in in, in a lot of ways, Aberfan is, uh, you know, obviously a terrible tragedy and you, you, you're very eloquently and, and, you know, almost dispassionately actually in a, in, a, in a journalistic way describe what went on and it's, you know, it's horrible. I think a lot of modern people might not be quite aware of exactly what happened in Aberfan, but that that's quite an... That feels like a thing from the from the past, you know, coal mines and 
slag heaps and it's it feels very 40s or 50s or 30s even and then obviously the 60s is also full of this space race and aeroplanes and and politics moving forwards and so it, I think this the 60s does seem to encapsulate this the start of the 60s feels like the 40s or the 50s and the end of the 60s feels like a very different different world that we're that we're in yeah yeah, yeah no no I I I I, I agree with you yeah yeah, good. <laughs> um, what I, you you don't really come down on any I think you, because I think you're correctly, I suppose, tr- trying to maintain a open mind about this and not not really come down in, on either side. Uh, do, do you fit? Do you think the Premonitions Bureau uh, had any real success? Or I mean, do you think it's possible to to see the future? Did you did you did you end up feeling that or not? So I have, you know, I have, I've, you know, I have quite a few things to uh, to say to say to say about this. I mean, I suppose the, you know, the first thing that I kind of kept in my mind is that when it seems to me is when we're told stories about the occult or the paranormal, you know, there is normally a pretty strong agenda either way why we're being told that information and it's normally to sort of desperately convince you that there's that there's something out there or it's done to sort of demolish things and show how you know irrational the human mind is and prone to confirmation bias and and seeing things and seeing things that aren't there and sort of you know very um you know maybe a sense that this kind of thinking is is harmful or delusional in some way and i and i really wanted to to write this story without, without you know, without a strong agenda, which I think is the kind of reporting and writing you get about many other subjects, you know. So I, I was I was keen to sort of try and write a history, if you know what I mean, a kind of closely observed little mm-hmm. social history of this experiment and the people who were involved in it, and to try and write about you know their experience um, and and in a sense leave it there and you know maybe that sounds like a bit of a cop out i mean but i suppose my my you know my justifications for sort of for doing that would be on the one hand i have not in my life ever experienced a premonition in the way that you know i describe you know the visions that 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 kind of occupied the premonitions bureau but I don't see how we can see things before they happen. You know, time moves in one direction. You know, physics is pretty, it's pretty solid on this. So I have, I have no reason to see these things as anything other than amazing coincidences that had a lot of significance for the people who witnessed them and who sort of, and, and experienced them. But on the other hand, you know, I'm not a religious person either, and but I wouldn't. I, I I kind of just note the way that occult beliefs or superstitious beliefs or impossible things like premonitions are are often marginalised. Whereas, to my mind, other realms of supernatural thinking, uh, you know, believing in you know gods or prayer or or, or other things, are, are kind of they're treated they're treated differently in our in our culture often and i'm not i'm not sure there's an entirely logical reason why that is i think there are cultural reasons why that is but i'm not sure there's an obvious um 
rational reason for sort of elevating one one type of um, magical thinking above another, if you know what I mean. No, I, mean, it's, I do. And I'm, you know, I'm a very sceptical person, but I would love all this stuff to be true equally. I've always <laughs> been fascinated. I mean, as a kid, I was always I was always fascinated with Nostradamus and stuff like that. Uh, and so there's a part, you know, there's a few of the things, you know, there's a couple of the 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 people that that send their stuff into the, the Premonitions Bureau who seem to have some good hits, but I don't know how many misses they also they also had. I think the uh, the uh, the one about the the Russian astronaut seems fairly strong, though again, uh, though again, I suppose that was so zeitgeist that if you were dreaming, you would dream of astronauts and dreams, uh, the kind of dreams you would have where someone would be trapped and crashing and dying. But all of that. Um, there, there are a few that do feel that do feel closer but then you know a lot of them i mean you address this in the book obviously the problem with a premonition it's it's not any use unless it's very specific and can and can point you to exactly what's going to happen which obviously none of them really do uh and if it does that then it won't come true because you'll stop it so it won't be a premonition so it's this sort of circular circular argument the idea of the idea of the premonitions bureau was partly set up to try and see if they could predict disasters and prevent them but obviously even if that had worked, which it, it did, clearly didn't, um, it sort of it, it sort of wouldn't wouldn't have worked as well. Its success would have been its own failure. So it's trapped in this logical paradox, isn't it? No, definitely, and that's something that Barker um, wrestled with. Um, he wasn't kind of he wasn't sort of unaware of of all the. <laughs> Of all, of all the problems, except for perhaps, you know, the main problem that this is, you know, on the face of it, impossible. But he was, he, he was, you know, occupied by this, this paradox of if you can stop something from happening, therefore, you know, how can you possibly have a vision of it? And he was aware of the, the scepticism and he was aware of the kind of the professional, you know, embarrassment or opprobrium kind of involved in undertaking something like this. And yet he went ahead with it anyway. Um, and likewise, Fairley, you know, who presented the moon landings on ITV and was kind of becoming quite a kind of, you know, known media personality in this in this part of the 60s, also didn't see a conflict with covering the biggest scientific stories of the time and pursuing these questions. I think it's, I think it's, I think, I think these were the things that I, I guess there were, yeah, there were two things. Like these were the kind of, the kind of outlooks or the kind of worldviews that I found really interesting. It's always irresistible when someone can see all the reasons why not to do something and they kind of do it anyway. There's something kind of, I find intrinsically pretty fascinating about that. Um, and then I guess the other thing that I found that sort of sustained me, you know, you sort of mentioned earlier, the book sort of, it tells the story of the, of the experiment, but it also kind of steps out from that. And there are some sort of, you know, brief visits into, you know, a bit of, you know, very light neuroscience, a bit of history of prophecies, some stuff about, you know, second sight in the Western Isles of Scotland and things like that, trying to sort of, if you like, I hope, give information to readers to sort of understand or sort of enrich their sense of of what's happening. But one of the things that that, that I 
that really kind of not exactly like kept me going, but but I keep kind of returning to when I think about this is this idea um, in neuroscience, which has been you know around and sort of gaining more momentum since the early 1990s of this idea that that our brains are driven by predicting what's going to happen next. Like we don't experience things or sense, you know, sensations from the outside world as they happen to us. Our brains are always reaching forward using our memories or past experiences or the environment that we've grown up in to shape what's happening to us. And I, I don't know, I kind of, I, I love the way that premonitions and predictions kind of blur into a very natural way of of making experience for ourselves you know we we you know we see we see things and make connections and make correlations constantly that's kind of how we survive and therefore kind of premonitions are just this like this one step beyond that are very very uh enticing and and kind of you know all, always have been there's always been this role for for profits and, and 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 people who can at least claim claim to see the next thing coming. So yeah, I mean, I, looking at, I mean, what's I suppose what's interesting about the if premonitions are true and they do work, even if they can't help us stop things happening, it does have a lot of implications for the nature of time and uh, and fate. I suppose if you can if we can predict the future, then the future is sort of set, isn't it? So that that means nothing we do has has any uh, purpose. What would you think about that if, if premonitions are true? <laughs> uh, strong, you know, strong, strong, strong stuff. Uh, d- d- <laughs> I mean, <sighs> these aren't, you know, these aren't sort of new uh, questions and and dilemmas for us. I mean, I kind of, I mean... <laughs> Where do where do I start with this? I mean, <laughs> I feel like you know, in the in the in the in the people that I was writing about, they experienced or thought they were experiencing glimpses, right? You know, a little a little a little moment where, for whatever kind of you know crossed crossed wire kind of out there, you you have impossible knowledge if you know what i mean and i don't certainly in in terms of kind of barker and the main you know percipients as he called them you know the people who are having these these visions uh, yes there's like big ramifications for for time and the future being simultaneous with the present and all sorts of um kind of mind-bending ideas but i think I think what really they thought they were onto was actually more of an idea of a kind of a shared subconscious, you know, if you know what I mean, like this Barker in particular was sort of mm-hmm. influenced by, you know, Jung and J.B. Priestley and other people who were kind of really occupied by questions of, of time and a sort of, a, a, a collective, you know, a shared, you know, a shared consciousness. And I say, and the idea that, you know, if I can see something that's gonna gonna happen to you before it happens, or you can see me over, you know, Barker often talked about twins. And, you know, if 
if something happens to a twin, you know, they have a, an accident and like three miles, you know, 300 miles away, the other twin gets a sort of uh, a, a, a pain in their knee or something like that. A lot of us, despite our kind of conscious rationalism, would sort of think, yeah, kind of fair enough, you know, is that, I don't really know how that would be possible. I also wouldn't exclude that from being possible. And Barker's sort of logic was, he called it, you know, the sympathetic projection of pain. If that could happen between two people across distance, you know, would it be possible for that to to happen across time? And even like hearing the words coming out of my mouth, that's nonsense. But on the other hand, it's also something that is also intuitively, like, I think, recognisable to many people in their experience. Like, it's been, you know, fun working on this because people, you know, sometimes say, oh, you know, what are you, what are you working on? And, I, and you tell them, you know, as briefly as you can, like, what it is. And you can sort of see sometimes when people are like, oh, okay, you know, fair enough, not not that interesting. But then other times, you know, like when I was working on this, you, you, you start sort of saying, oh, I'm writing about, a, you know, a psychiatrist in the 60s who, who thought some people could see the future. I normally wouldn't really be able to get past that before people are just off telling me about, you know, their experiences in, in their life <laughs> or in their family's experience or the thing they heard in the barbershop the other day. Um, and, and, and people's lives and people's family lives, I think, carry a lot of these stories and experiences that people don't know really know what to do with. There is no explanation for them. And yet they have changed them in some way or marked them in that way, some way. Maybe they made a decision as a result of it or didn't make a decision as a result of it. Or I like, even though there isn't an adequate uh, real explanation for these happenings, because we're people, because we're human, they still they still affect us and change us. Do you see the sort of distinction that I'm drawing? No, I do, and like, you know, completely. You know, it is because, like I say, I'm I'm two people in that I you know I want to kind of go well. You know, this the thing is like so a lot of the Abervan predictions. Obviously, they came out after the event, and so people might have might be lying. They might have convinced themselves yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that happened. You know, I had any. I had I had when I when I first when my first date with my wife and. Uh, uh, who my future? Who would be my future wife? Uh, I kind of had a very, and she was with someone else, and I, but I had a very strong feeling we were going to be together, and we were going to have two kids, which we did. We did have, but it was as much a, a hope, I guess, as a reality. And I wonder how much subsequently I've rewritten that. Th- it was something I didn't say. It was something I thought, and something I had to stop myself saying because it's not a great first date. We're going to have two kids, uh, but but you know how much of that actually. For example, the, the girl in Abervan, um, the, the girl who died in Abervan, who on the morning her mum said she came down and said, I'm not scared of dying, and also I've had a dream about uh, being at school and it being covered in blackness, and some, some words to that effect. Um, you know, we don't, you don't know whether, you know, that mother's been through a very emotional experience. She might, she might have, mis- you know, not necessarily misremembered, but pieced things together in a different way or, or even... Or even the the event might not have happened. Similarly, uh, I mean, these are just all the cynical things you could, you know, the, the, what a cynic would say. Similarly, if everyone's slightly, half the people were very worried about the cold tip and half the people would say they weren't. And obviously, if that was in the air, then kids were probably going to have dreams about about things going wrong. Just that's the nature of humanity, right? So it's easy after the event to say this is that that prediction came true. And they also I thought with a lot of the plane crash ones. That seem pretty strong. There's also lots of detail in those predictions that 
that wasn't in the actual event. There were sort of six plane crashes a year at that time as well. So you were pretty likely to, if you said there's going to be a plane crash, you were pretty likely to to get it, right? Or do you yeah, think, yeah, yeah. Or do, you think do you think they're closer? No, 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 no. I know, no, I know I, you you're know, not. I know you're not an advocate for it. I know you're not. No, no, no. But no, I just tell, no, I just tell you my, my, you know, my, my, my thoughts while you're kind of, you know, pointing out these things. You know, like, you know, obviously we're talking about confirmation bias here and people seeing things after the fact. And you know, this happens particularly with, you know, with dreams. We dream all kinds of junk, and 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 then we sort of pick out the one telling detail, and our brains very efficiently discard all the other actual stuff that the dream was about in order to kind of come up with the thing which which prefigured, you know, the person stepping into your path, you know, the next day. Like, no question at all. I think I think other things that that, that I've thought about are, you know, let you know. And Abavan is particularly kind of horrifying, but also kind of um, full of full of the full of full of these questions. One is just the simple human need to try and make sense of experience. Right? You know, we have yeah. you know horrendous disasters of of all of all kinds, and you know we saw this a little bit at work at the the onset of the pandemic. You know we get the full range, don't we, from kind of conspiracy theories to this was a completely unforeseen, unprecedented. How many times did we hear the word unprecedented in the space of six months? Do you know what I mean? Whereas, in fact, there's another highly, you know, painfully rational reading of it. It was like, oh, yeah, this was the, like, number one threat to, like, the British economy and national security was, you know, a respiratory disease pandemic like it's there in all in all the papers so you can it, it becomes i think a highly personal um f- sort of way of processing events is do you tell yourself there was no way this could have been stopped or do you sell this as ah look human error this was sitting right there in front of us if we had just put the connections together together better we would have made an accurate prediction about the likelihood of this thing ranging through to someone else is in control of everything our lives are predestined there is a shadowy conspiracy you know brewing up you know covid19 and laboratories everywhere do you know what i mean it's kind of it's kind of interesting I do, yeah. with, within our recent life to, to to see and you can see exactly the same thing at work in Abavan and one of the you know the people I was so uh, pleased to to talk to is this American photographer Chuck Rappaport who yeah. some of the photographs uh, are in the book and who's been an astonishing kind of witness to what happened in Abavan in 1968 six, and actually since then and showing his photographs in in Merthyr Tidville and and Wales he's he's a really wonderful man but he was fascinating to talk to because he was 29 years old american go-getting uh photographer who just jumped on a plane a complete fish out of water in this village and and while we were talking he would say look the, the community just split in all these ways some people said you know oh my goodness how could such a you know incredibly tragic thing happen here the complete like it came out of thin air and other people saying you know my god we've been writing to the coal company and writing to our mp and writing to local council for years warning of exactly this thing and and people having you know going through the same experience will will think very differently about how foreseeable it was and how much of their life is 
down to chance and how much of their life is is in a sense already preordained. But I suppose with a tragedy like that, it was you know it was preventable. It was it was sort of inevitable, not necessarily that happened while the school had just opened, which was uh, obviously the a huge tragedy of it. Um, but you know, I, I wonder if there's an element of because it was predictable in a sense that the fact that it didn't get stopped and they stopped it, it, and that it wasn't outwardly predictable made that, that I wonder if that made this you know, the the uh, premonition side of things all the more kind of appealing, but also also made them happy. You know, we should have seen this coming, but we didn't see it coming. So here's an example of, you know, yeah. you know, do you, do you get what I'm, what I'm saying? No, I, I think, think sort of I, I, things no, I think, I think, I think you've got, you've got, every, you've got so many things at work all at the same time. And obviously this kind of unbearable pain that, you know, 114 of the people who died were children and, some of the yeah. most, you know, convincing or haunting premonitions were were from children, and children do have this kind of uncanny kind of openness, don't they? That, that we kind of we don't really know what's coming out of their mouths. Are they kind of less hidebound and more porous, or are they just sort of, you know, as Chuck Rappaport said of the girl Errol May Jones, who had that, you know terrifying nightmare of school you know was she just trying to say it to get out of school you know people you know people even people who even even at the time kind of heard these things very differently i think from from my point of view kind of researching it and writing it thinking about abavan as it was one of the you know the central questions of of the tribunal which was assembled really pretty soon after the accident they were up and running giving hearings and and and, and taking you know judge led in you know inquiry you know six weeks after after the disaster and had the report all done by the following february and one of the central questions is was this was this foreseeable and the that report makes completely fascinating reading for its very human treatment of the fact that this was of course foreseeable and preventable and yet previous landslips that had happened had happened just infrequently enough that people kind of forgot about them or thought that they probably wouldn't happen again, or people's divided their realities and competences. You know, the guys piling up the waste didn't think it was their responsibility to think about how it might fall down the mountain again because that wasn't their job. And and, and it's actually very eloquent on on lots of the things that we're talking about right now. Yeah. It is, you know, it is. It's all very fascinating, and I think, I think, you know, I, I think the history in this book is as interesting as, uh, as, uh, as any kind of the uh, of whether premonitions are true or not. I mean, and, and that's, and you know, and I think you leave it very open ended, so it's, it, so you can make up your your own mind about stuff like that. My son, the other day, we were in Pizza Express, and a, a couple came in, and so my son's usually very friendly. A couple came in and sat at the next table, and the woman was very heavily pregnant. Uh, and just my son turned to them and said, "Why aren't you married?" And my wife looked, and she and the the woman didn't have a, didn't have a wedding ring, and it was so out of character with my son that it kind of felt you had to interpret going, "He's been possessed by the ghost of some nineteenth century religious <laughs> figure who's noticed that because it was sort of such a weird, you know, he can't possibly have noticed that she wasn't married, and uh, you know, noticed the ring, and it was such a weird thing to say. So you start, you also start to. You know, you can do it both ways. You can either you can sort of go, well, that's nonsense, or you can start to project things on there 
that aren't necessarily there because kids just say a load of mad stuff. I also think with the with the all the psychics that were gathered together to go on the David Frost show yeah. to. Uh, to uh, discuss this, or the, who all turned out to be too kooky looking for the, to be on TV, none of them had had a premonition that they wouldn't be on the show, so they didn't need to bother going. <laughs> so, uh, and, and similarly, and similarly, no one. And uh, the, the the hospital you mentioned uh, that Tabaka worked at, Shelton, had, was it was it was at the centre of, uh, of a of quite a tragic fire as well, which again. Nobody, none of the the premonition bureau people picked up on supposedly. So it's it's sort of it's a very random, <laughs> random thing, uh, random power these people have. But it, you know, I think it still is. It is very. Uh, there's something you know. There's something about it. I think you you even when it is, even though it would mean the world is a very different place to what it is. And yeah, either time run concurrently and every, we can see everything, or uh, or the the future is ultimately completely predictable. Uh, it does, you, there's a part of you that just wants this stuff to be true, and that's I think that fuels it, doesn't it? And so I think that's what's interesting about this. That was that, that it was that mixture of science and the journalistic spirit of the Evening Standard guy fairly to to make a story out of it and sell papers out of it. It's uh, you know it's it's an endlessly fascinating subject. Oh, well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I th- thank you, but I mean, I I think that I was, um, I mean, in a way that that anecdote about them kind of nearly getting on the David Frost program kind of summed up a lot of <laughs> a lot of the the story or at least the kind of the atmosphere of it for me do you know what i mean it was this it was this 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 turning that we didn't quite take if you know what i mean it just it just hovered on the edge of mainstream thinking just for a minute do you know what i mean and maybe this was a sort of a moment where where some of this thinking got got as close got as close as it as it as it ever has done and it was sort of it was it was it, it it's been a lot of fun to me to to kind of to bring that bring that to life i d- i also you know on this on this kind of yearning for this for this stuff for this stuff to be true i mean i kind of i think i you know i find talking to you know, talking to people about this story, and I'm in this slightly sort of weird situation at the moment where quite a few people, you know, email me their pre- their premonitions now. Um, that that there are quite a few people who who, who carry these kind of very knotty, Im- impossible seeming events in their lives, and they just kind of don't know what to. They don't know what to do with it because it doesn't connect to a you know, a, a, a rational explanation of the world, and and yet you have this experience. So, and 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 what do you, and what do you do with that? And maybe kind of in earlier periods in our history, when you know these things would be absorbed into, you know, religious forms of thinking. But 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 by but by saying these things aren't, aren't possible, then then they just sort of. They just sort of sit there, and, and and things like the Premonitions Bureau, you know, act as this kind of this outlet and a way for and a way of sort of talking about it. I'm kind of another sort of thing that I've, I've sort of found useful to think about. Is J.B. Priestley wrote this book called Man and Time in 1964, where he just he talked about the kind of the modern 
notion of of time, one second, you know, following on remorselessly after each other until the, you know, until we die. He called it like the we live with the worst understanding of time that people have ever had. We're just talking about earlier societies being full of kind of cyclical natures of time or kind of more porous ways in which the future or the past could kind of meet each other as actually being a more you know in a way a more a more livable existence great uh, I, I listened to the audiobook which is great julian ryan tut is there is there a reason you didn't do the audiobook yourself uh, uh no one asked me um but i but i did i i did ask for julian ryan tut so i'm really really happy that that he was that he was able to do it and i think he did a, a, a wonderful job yeah it's very good it's well it's look it's a really brilliant book and um like I say, there's much more to it than than just uh, premonitions, and you, you get a real snapshot of a of a time in in history as well, which I, I really like. And yeah, and and I love the little digressions, and I love the jumping back and forth in history, which is perhaps uh, perhaps uh, the, you know, significant. Perhaps that's how the world is. We don't know. Are you? Uh, is there any uh, books that you're reading at the moment that you would like to recommend? As this is a book club. Um, yeah, I'm reading a, uh, a book of short stories uh, called Reward System uh, by a writer called Jem Calder. And they're kind of short stories, quite kind of millennial, quite kind of um, a little, a little, a little cold, a little sort of dominated by technology. But I'm finding them, I'm finding them really, really gripping. Terrific. Um, look, uh, it's been really great to talk to you, Sam, and I really recommend the book, The Premonitions Bureau. I, I think it's doing very well. It's in the uh, it's in the window of Waterstones in Hitchin. That's all I can tell you. So it must be always a good sign. It must be doing pretty well. Yeah. It must be doing right. pretty well. The people of Hitchin have spoken. Um, uh, thank you so much for coming on, and thank really you, love to I meet you. And uh, also, and thanks to Chris Evans as always for. For producing and directing, I mean, not very well today because it's been quite difficult to get through. But we can't blame him for that. Thank you, Sam. Okay, cheers, Richard. 